This is episode number 45 with Dalip Shikawat, an educator from Manitoba, Canada, who is no stranger to challenge. Last May, Dalip reached the summit of Mount Everest to raise funds for the St. Amon School in Winnipeg, Manitoba, and is now preparing for his next challenge that's tied into raising funds for the Wounded Warriors of Canada, where he will run a combined distance of more than 500 kilometers, that's 311 miles, over different terrain, in different climates, and at different altitudes, to stimulate the physical adversities these warriors faced. Welcome to the Neuroscience Meet Social and Emotional Learning Podcast. My name is Andrea Samadhi. I'm a former educator who's been fascinated with understanding the science behind high performance strategies in schools, sports, and the workplace for the past 20 years. Each week, we bring you an expert who's risen to the top of their field with specific strategies or ideas that you can implement immediately. Whether you're a teacher or student in the classroom or working in the corporate world to take your results to the next level. Welcome to Lead. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you so much for being here. Dalip, I want to first of all thank my friend Cheryl Watt. She lives in Winnipeg and she sent me over your story. And when I first read about your challenge to summit Mount Everest to raise funds for the St. Amon Center with people with developmental disabilities, I knew I needed to reach out immediately to you. And now I find out you're in the middle of raising funds for another just as equally important challenge for the Wounded Warriors. That's so inspiring. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here on Daylight Savings Time Time Change Day, so bright and early on Sunday morning. Yeah, I got up so early. <laughs> That's <laughs> fine, yeah. The early start is a good start, right? Yeah. So Dalip, I'm gonna get right into the questions for you. Okay. I'm an avid hiker here in Arizona. We've got quite a few mountains, um, but I can never imagine hiking up Mount Everest. What was behind the drive to motivate you to actually summit Mount Everest and then your next challenge to run more than 500 kilometers? Okay, Andrea, that's a great question. Uh, actually, uh, there are two big drives uh, behind that. One, it comes from part from my deep sense of family duty and respect for my parents. And the second one is we live in a very soft environment, which is full of easy access and effortless entertainment. We aren't prepared for any hardships or adversities. When things get tough, we quit or we play victim to it. I chose to fight back to my failures, disappointments, and discriminations by channelizing this negativity to fuel my passion. And that's why I chose to go for bigger goals. Wow, well those are huge goals. And I actually have heard about people um, hiking Everest, but I never really dove deep into it until I was reading your story. How did you prepare for Everest? So I read that you've climbed more than 15 other mountains and I just wonder where are they? Because the last time I looked, I only saw two mountains in Manitoba. <laughs> yeah, we have a garbage hill here, <laughs> which is not uh, actually a mountain. So yeah, for my, as far as my preparation goes, uh, it took me over 15 years of preparation, planning, and training. I followed a strict progressive training plan and a spiritual regime to uh, prepare myself. Uh, and my uh, training was kind of uh, dissected into 
a very cellular level details to prepare myself physically and mentally. So I did long days. Uh, I went on multi-day hikes. I did ultra running. I emptied my tank. Uh, I trained until I was exhausted. I did dehydration training to build more tolerance for thirst. I did cold training. Manitoba winters are great for that. I joined Winter Ultra and did winter camping. I did some hunger tolerance training because there you have to go uh, you know, without food for th more than 36 hours. I did hypoxic training where I had go for fit masks to increase my lung capacity and uh, increase my diaphragm strength. I also did weight training. Uh, I carried 30 kilos of backpack to, to get used to that weight, which I have to carry up to camp three and then uh, carry my oxygen cylinder up there. And I also trained for sleep deprivation training because you don't sleep at that altitude. It's so dysregulated uh, there. And I also trained cardio and endurance training to prepare uh, for physically, uh, you know, uh, for the Everest. But besides that, I, I trained uh, spiritually too. I meditated over years to visualize and experience the powerful atmosphere and consciousness of Himalayas. And I treated this climb as a pilgrimage to Mother Goddess of All Mountain. I wanted to feel my oneness with the entirety. So all this, uh, you know, summed up and I, uh, been, I've been climbing, uh, like I, I had been climbing for 15 years. Most of my climbs are in India after doing my basic and advanced mountain range courses. I climbed in Karakoram and Janskar ranges in Himalayas, northern, northern India. I did uh, Shatidhar Peak, Friendship Peak, Stoke Kangri, Mount Kun, Peak 40. Uh, I climbed in Canadian Rockies. Uh, I did Mount Belfort, Mount Victoria, Mount Olive. I went on Wapcha Travers. Uh, also, I climbed in Mexico, where I did Mount Orizaba, Mount Ista, Mount Malinki. Mount Toluca, and I also went on Ice Line Trail. Besides that, I had indicators for, for me to tell me that I'm ready for Everest, where I uh, did 100 miles to indicate that uh, I'm ready for Everest. So that, that's, that's all uh, preparation you, know, you have to go through. Uh, and it was progressive, uh, started from uh, like three years, and then it narrowed down to more intense uh, uh, the last six months before my climb, it was almost like I was so uh, fixated on, on doing push-ups, core training, because I had one thing in my head that I had to go to the summit and come back safe. Wow. Well, I got goosebumps at all of that because I, I can't imagine. And you did all this training while you were working at the St. Amon School? Is this yes. So, so, yeah, add to that... Uh, I used to get up at 4 a.m. and I still get up at 4 a.m. And I start my day with meditation. Then I do my strength building training. And during my lunch hour at work, I do stair climbing and I go for long walks. And in the evening, I do my main uh, variable high intensity training. So that's, that's how I, you know, you have to struggle between time, energy, and money. You know, those are the big factors. And we all have the same 24 hours. So. That's how I managed it. Oh, it's brilliant. It's a good strategy to get up early. It's a brilliant strategy. But 
as I was getting closer to the top, I was surprised at myself because I thought, I said to my husband, if you don't feel well, just let me know because you know we can turn back. And then it was me that I was shocked that I had a hard time with the, the low oxygen. So I just wonder, as you were talking, was there anything that surprised you about how you um, acclimated or did, was was everything did everybody understand what was happening to their bodies i think sherpas are really good at catching pulse so because how the uh, uh, this high altitude affects you is like our brain has three regions uh, cerebellum uh, cerebellum and medulla oblongata so first part which is the new brain which is cerebrum which is affected and your speech become delayed you know you you slow down uh, you're confused. So that is the first sign that you're, you're getting that high altitude sickness. And the second is when your movement is like kind of zombie, mm -hmm. you, you walk like you're drunk. Yeah, and the third stage is you start hallucinating. So I was at second stage when I, I got down to camp two. So then last stage is uh, hallucination. Then it's, 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 then death is inevitable. So, you know, I was very close that, my training was perfect, I would say, to, to make, make me back safe. Now, I, uh, what physical toll did this take on your body? And, and as I looked at it, is it true that it takes two months to actually hike to the summit? Can you take me through the start to the finish of the summit and then coming back? The climb. Uh, we face so many dangers like avalanches, earthquakes, which account for 40% of death in Mount Everest. Uh, frostbite, kumbu cough, extreme cold and strong winds. There's high altitude sickness, which causes cerebral and preliminary edema, cardiac arrest, muscle wasting, crevasses, traffic jam, gear failure, dysfunctional sleep. And it also depends on individual training, what you, how you prepare for it. And believe me, uh, Anything can go wrong and it will go wrong. So as far as I'm concerned, uh, I lost 15 pounds and uh, I felt very weak after the climb. I uh, felt uh, my toes were numb for months and I had a serious frostbite on two of my toes, which I had to get them removed. So it's, it takes a big toll uh, on, on your body because going through those extremes, which you cannot prepare, uh, you know, makes it a little, little hard on body. Wow. Wow. What a sacrifice for this. Dalip, take me through the hike from start to finish. Okay, Andrea. Yes, uh, it took us almost two months to climb Mount Everest, and the favorite uh, climbing season is April and May. So after landing in Kathmandu in April, we rested for two days. We went out on a city tour. We visited the famous temple, Pashpatinath Temple. We met other team members. We got a gear check, and uh, we got our documents verified. After that, we were flown to Lukla, which is at 2,860 meters, which is the busiest domestic airport during that season. This area has no road, they have tiny planes, a lot of turbulence, and the shortest runway makes the whole ride so scary. After eating the breakfast at the airport, we begin our hike to Everest Base Camp. It is the most famous track in the world. 
with stunning sceneries, watching sunrise over Mount Everest from Kalapatar, crossing those epic suspension bridges, monasteries, tea houses, yaks, beautiful streams, and meeting amazing people makes the whole journey legendary. The round trip to Everest Space Camp takes almost 12 days, and it's 130 kilometer in total. After hiking for seven days, we arrived at Everest Space Camp, which is at 5,400 meters. We were actually at the far end of the, uh, of the camp to avoid the regular hikers. Everest Space Camp is stressed in three kilometers of area, and it becomes a tent city during that season. With 381 climbers and 600 support staff, you can imagine how crowded it gets. So we acclimatized for a week, uh, and then we got two days of uh, glacier training where we learned to cross uh, the ladders. We learned how to jumar, we learned how to repel, and uh, we did some training on oxygen mask and switching oxygen cylinders. So Everest Base Camp runs parallel to Kumbu Glacier. And Kumbu Glacier is a melting river of ice. It starts at 7,600 meters at Lotse Face, and it runs down uh, to Everest Base Camp. But because of uh, climate change, its size is getting lesser and lesser. The glacier is melting. But its steepest part is 2.5 miles, which is known as uh, Kumbu Ice Fall. It is the first hurdle which the climbers face. It is like a popcorn field. It is a ginormous chambers of ice blocks, which are known as seracs. It's like walking in a horror chamber. Any serac uh, can crack anytime. A crevasse can open near you. The priority is to cross it as soon as possible. And one third of the total casualties which happened here are uh, in this region. Uh, yeah, it's, and this year we had, uh, like last year, we had 25 ladders to cross. It is maintained by Kumbu Ice Fall doctors. Before we step onto the mountains, uh, Sherpas do a prayer ceremony where they invite a monk and we bring all our gears and equipments uh, to get the blessings from uh, mountain god and goddess. Mm -hmm. After the prayer ceremony, we begin our acclimatization rotations. Again, it depends on agency to agency and climber to climber how many times they want to go. Uh, it's recommended that we go twice for acclimatization. And what happens during acclimatization is we go up to camp one, we sleep one night, we go to camp two, we sleep one night, we touch camp three, we come back, sleep at camp two, and come back to base camp. So that's basically to acclimatize your body. And what happens during that is body makes uh, red red cells and the muscles feed some enzymes which helps in oxygen absorption. If the climber are not acclimatized, they are pushing too hard, too fast, they will suffer from high altitude sickness. And I mentioned in the past that uh, pulmonary edema and cerebral edema are the main cause of high altitude sickness. So we reached camp two after six hours of grueling climb. Believe me, it was very steep to cross through Kumbu Icefall and uh, it was scary. At the time, we were always worried that something might happen, uh, avalanche might come, because in 2014-15, that's where the Sherpas got buried uh, by the, when the west shoulder came down uh, on the top, top left 
of the glacier. Uh, it is a very, uh, Camp 1 is at 6,100 meters, which is a vast flat area of endless snow with deep crevasses. Uh, we could hear the murmuring and cracking sounds under our tents at night and frequent, uh, frequent avalanches and hidden crevasses were everywhere in this area. So it was a very scary night wow. um, when we were there the first time. Camp 2 uh, is not far from Camp 1. It's only 300 meters, but uh, there are ice steps which we have to cross, and each ice step is three to, uh, sorry, five to 10 meters high. And we are carrying full load, and in the sun, it, it becomes so hot that you walk like a zombie. It slows you down, and uh, it's a silent valley, so it heats up pretty fast. So after uh, walking for four hours, of uh, uh, heat, uh, we reached Camp 2, which is on the uh, left foot of the Lhotse face. And this is like uh, uh, one of the last resting phase uh, when we go for summit push, where uh, helicopters evacuation can, can be done. And uh, this place becomes so stunning uh, in the evening, all the clouds roll over from the lower ranges in the uh, lower ranges. And, uh, but still it's very cracked and very scary. There are lots of uh, glaciers uh, openings uh, and one of our toilet was also on a crevasse in this area. After spending the restless nights, we uh, hiked up to camp three, we touched the camp three and we came back to base camp. Uh, camp three, uh, is at 7,300 meters. So every year it varies depending on uh, amount of snow present. Um, it was halfway at the Lhotse face. It, it has icy slopes and it is a 1,200 meter steep treacherous climb. We need brute Jamar strength to pull ourselves up with a full load to check uh, uh, our stamina. Uh, the camp here was like eagle's nest placed right out on the wall. We use supplementary oxygen beyond camp three. So after acclimatization uh, rotations, our bodies were fully ready for the summit push. And uh, we got rest for a week to, to recover and replenish. So some people go to Kathmandu, some people go um, to the lower camps just to recover and uh, you know, be ready for the summit push. But uh, uh, in 2019, uh, unfortunately, we got hit by the cyclone Feni when we were expecting summit window. And uh, that was during May 4th and 5th. And these cyclone uh, were uh, with strong winds of hurricane four category winds, which destroyed the higher camps and dumped a lot of snow up on the higher camps. So because of that, all the mountaineering act activities were abandoned and uh, which delayed all the route opening, which delayed all the supply of food to higher camps. And then yeah, they have to go rebuild the camp. So we missed the first weather window because of that. So uh, in 29, because of Cyclone Fanny, we had uh, only four sporadic summit days as compared to straight week. The first short window was 16 hours, uh, which was on 15th and 16th when uh, we submitted. Uh, and the second was between 22nd and 24th of May. Uh, 
So we got a good news at the base camp that a calm summit wind uh, is on 15th and 16th, and it's only a very short 16-hour window. And it's a challenge if we can do it. But you know, my Sherpa was ready and he knew my strength. So we were very thrilled and excited to try our luck. We started our final push on 12th of midnight. We moved straight to camp two uh, and we relaxed for one night and reached camp three on 14th evening. After resting for a few hours around 3 a.m. on 15th, we started climbing in dark and freezing icy slopes. We continued for over nine hours and reached camp four, which is known as South Coal. Uh, the altitude of 7,950 meters. On the way, we crossed Yellow Band and Geneva Spur. After reaching Camp 4, so Camp 4 is basically known as death zone. You are uh, at one third of atmospheric oxygen level there, and we were at the edge of atmosphere and stratosphere. We could view Kanchenjunga and Makalu from, from that distance. And we pitched our tents by four o'clock. We had a few hours to rest uh, before we do our final push. And I couldn't think that there was a real risk of death on this final push. At about 8.30 p.m., we began our climbing. I knew my fitness and acclimatization will be tested during 900-meter ascent to the highest point on the planet. The wall towards the summit was steep, icy, and desperately cold. It took us almost uh, nine hours to reach the summit, which was pretty fast as compared to, uh, on an average, like it takes 12 hours. So we reached balcony around 1.30 a.m. My oxygen cylinder was switched by the Sherpa, and then uh, we reached the ridge around 3 a.m. But then before, uh, we reached the summit, there was a final hurdle, which was the knife ridge, which was very steep and frightful because there is a sheer drop on both sides. And uh, in the middle was Hillary Step, which is a 40 feet, 40 feet high uh, wall of rock and ice, which we have to climb. So we did that. And finally, we reached a white, white ridge, and that was the summit. So around five o'clock, we saw the beautiful sunrise that happened already around four-ish, and uh, we were at the summit. We took uh, pictures with the flag, and uh, it was dangerously cold, I would say. We stayed only for five minutes, and we started descending because my Sherpa knew that uh, the winds will pick up if we stay longer, and it was a very short window. So uh, in a single push, we descended uh, to Camp 2, which is at 6,500 meters. So around 10.30 p.m., we... We reached uh, our camp two. I was so tired, dehydrated, exhausted. Uh, I was walking like a zombie at that point. I know that I have reached my last uh, like point where I'm totally exhausted and I can collapse anytime. But uh, I was in safe hands. I was uh, in, the, in the tents now. And uh, I fell into deeper sleep after eating hot food. And finally, I, I could believe and say that I, I became an average summiter. Oh. Next morning, we descended back to uh, base camp. We took helicopter ride back to Kathmandu. My frozen toes were examined at uh, Kathmandu and it was diagnosed as frostbite. Mm -hmm. 
and unfortunately i had to lose two of them i accept this loss as my gain and a souvenir from the everest to remember dangers the mighty mountain can offer wow what a trip when when i read that two out of six of those you were hiking with didn't make it back down i wondered how on the earth could you prepare for that what mental strength did you have to develop to handle that was there any point that you thought this is not worth it you have a family at home to come home to did you ever think about turning back uh i think uh to prepare for uh this kind of situation you reach summit after four days of grueling and freezing climb it was like a dream come true there is no way to prepare or simulate the power of 36 hours in that zone where you earn a decade of glory and wisdom while being exhausted dehydrated sleep deprived hungry suffering from high altitude sickness your body encountered disease climbers and your body is dying cell by cell and minute by minute as as long as you stay on in the death zone so it's hard to say that there is a way to prepare for it you have to go there and experience it that's the only way i can say you know to prepare and i had flashbacks initially when i got back um, and through meditation i healed myself and as long as uh, uh my family uh, is con- is concerned you know i detached myself emotionally from all those traps before i went for this expedition because i knew the results and the risk involved in that and um, i answered those tough questions questions during my meditation so that they won't stop me so i was mentally pre- prepared for those situations Well, I bet your wife is happy the next challenge is a run on the ground, right? <laughs> yeah, I I think that uh, sometimes you have to choose your battles, you know. Uh, I wanted something bigger and, you know, sometimes you you go with intensity, sometimes you go with uh, you know, what you want to do and sometimes budget is also important, you know, because uh, uh feeding a family and uh, you know, <clears throat> sometimes gets hard to to have that much just for saving so how did this experience change you and what did you learn about yourself i'm sure there's so many insights along the way climbing everest was a huge undertaking physically mentally and financially i felt very proud after waving the flag of canada along with sainaman and royal military rifles flag on the summit And the biggest thing is after seeing the cosmic size of Everest and getting the aerial view of the world from 30,000 feet gave me a better sense of sizing up problems in my life. And I used the gain momentum to fuel new and bigger challenges. What could be bigger than Mount Everest? I think uh bigger challenges we all have our own Everest to climb in life, you know. There there are challenges which you know people don't understand we all go through it you know and the big lesson i learned is not all the physical and mental limitations are real through self discipline and commitment we all have the power to pull the impossible 
Absolutely. I firmly believe that as well. Dalip, that is so insightful. I want to thank you so much for your quick reply to, to do this interview. Um, I know that there's a lot of wisdom that comes from this and from people hearing your story, they can learn so much. And if anyone wants to support your Wounded Warriors Challenge, I have put the link in the show notes and I'll put it in the YouTube as well so that they could donate because it's very important. You can't do these challenges without raising funds for somebody else. So um, my, my last question is, you know, can you give some final thoughts on why it's so important to raise funds for disadvantaged groups like Wounded Warriors and St. Amon School? I think as a responsible citizen, I feel it is my moral duty to contribute to the community and the country. During Mount Everest climb, I raised funds for Sinaman Foundation to help provide resources and tools for individuals we support. And now I'm raising funds for Wounded Warriors Canada to honor the fallen and support the ill and injured soldiers, veterans, first responders, and their family affected by war and peacekeeping missions. My appeal is to raise $5,000 and all proceeds will go to help ill and injured soldiers, veterans, first responders, and their families in need. And through these runs, I'm simulating the physical adversities which they face uh, during those conditions. So I think there's a very solid reason, you know, as I said in my why is that why my drives, you know, I, it's, it's a duty to respond to this, you know, and contribute to the community. It absolutely is. You're a model citizen, Dali, but I want to thank you so much for sharing this experience because there's so much more to it than just you hiked up Everest. There's the whole preparation that a lot of people don't understand is behind it. The whole reason why you did it, the whole reason why you're supporting the Wounded Warriors. So um, we look forward to helping you promote what you're doing and to see you raise the $5,000 you need to support Wounded Warriors and to follow whatever challenge you set up in the future, because I know there's going to be many more, right? Yes, that's true. This is just the starting point, you know. I want to pick my battle, and I want to get it harder and harder and take it to the next level and engage the community in a healthier way so that, you know, people can, can learn that it's, it's possible. You know, don't hide from it. Don't run from it. Embrace it and, and create a system in your body which, where you, you can feed all this negativity and, you know, grow out of it and face it. You're a model citizen. Thank you so much, Dalib. I appreciate your time today. Thank you, Andrea. If you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episodes. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com. 